Have you ever had one of those uh, awkward uh, experiences where you go back maybe for Christmas to meet family that you haven't seen for a long time or friends, old school friends or maybe a school reunion where uh, people don't really know you anymore and uh, you kind of get the feeling that they're treating you uh, as they did last time you saw them. So maybe they're treating you as a little child or they haven't got a clue really of the person that you've um, become. And as we read in that passage from Mark, uh, chapter 6, uh, Jesus had the same kind of trouble that, uh, you know, he'd been uh, started his ministry and doing these amazing miracles and amazing teaching. But then uh, when he back, went back to his hometown, to the people that he'd known for the longest, um, they just couldn't see past the fact that uh, they'd known him as a boy or maybe a young tradesman, a young carpenter, and uh, they just couldn't understand how he'd become the, the man that he'd become. And for many people today, Jesus remains just that, a baby in the manger. They don't get any further than that. They don't know Jesus the man. They don't know who he is or what he's achieved. They don't know the fact that he is uh, seated at the right hand of God and and is coming again. And even after his resurrection, Jesus' followers still struggled, didn't they? When uh, Luke gives that account on the road to Emmaus, where those two people were uh, uh, walking along and Jesus led them, didn't he, through the scriptures. It says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things that concerned himself. So even with those that had kind of known his ministry on earth, there's a real uh, failure to see just all that he is and all that's prophesied about him in the scriptures. So I thought as we uh, have been studying uh, Ecclesiastes on a, uh, once a month on a, on a Sunday night, I thought it'd be interesting Uh, just to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe a little summary of uh, some of the things that we've looked at and drawn out of there, but actually to see where we can find Jesus in those, to actually reflect on uh, the things concerning the good news of Jesus uh, that relate to the studies that we've uh, had so far. So we're going to kind of flit about in scriptures a bit. We're going to make reference to Isaiah 53 and to the chapter from Mark, but we're also going to draw out some verses that we've looked in and Ecclesiastes, and hopefully these will be familiar to you. You might have to drag back in your memory from uh, eight or nine months ago. But uh, we're really going to look at uh, the Lord Jesus uh, in Ecclesiastes. And I thought where it'd be a good uh, place to start was, uh, I don't know whether you remembered quite early on when we looked at chapter three, that uh, I said that the, uh, the record for the oldest uh, lyrics ever to a song to reach number one on the US charts are actually from Ecclesiastes. And it's uh, To Everything There Is A Season. And it was a song, 1965, by The Birds. Um, And the lyrics to that were over 2,000 years old because they came from Solomon's word in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to start with Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 2. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born. And Solomon says that uh, God sets the time for all things, Uh, And even for uh, opposites, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to gather, a a time to scatter. And God sets the time for these things. And there's a right time for all of these things. And this includes the birth of Jesus. If you think about it, it was something that was planned and ordained before the creation of the world. But it didn't happen for thousands of years. But Galatians 4, 4, it says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Then if you remember in verses, uh, in chapter six and seven, Solomon talks about the importance of names. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes six, verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already. Chapter seven, verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment. And if you remember the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph were given very specific instructions about the naming of Jesus. It wasn't just up to them to look in one of those uh, baby naming books or think through their relatives and choose a name. Jesus was given a very special name that would describe who he was and why he'd come into the world. Truly, he was named already. Truly, he had a name that was better than any precious ointment. Matthew 1.21, and she will bring forth a son and you should call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah predicted his birth, his character and his mission in those famous words from chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, how can... The child that was worshipped by shepherds and wise men, how can a child given such wonderful names grow up to be mistaken by his family and friends for just another normal carpenter in the area? How did that happen? The scriptures don't share specific information about Jesus' childhood and early life. We don't really know much at all from ages sort of 20 to 30, other than the fact that he developed a good name. He was subject, he was obedient to his parents. And in Luke 2, 51, it says he increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and with man. From the passage in Mark, we know that those who knew him growing up and uh, as a young carpenter were shocked by the knowledge and the ability to teach which he had, which suggests to me anyway that his early life must have been fairly uneventful. We don't, uh, you know, they wouldn't have been surprised if he'd had some kind of specific training or, you know, was some kind of incredible student. Obviously, we have the, the, the time that he was lost in the temple and they wondered there, but it doesn't seem to be as though he went off to train in theology school or anything like that. It doesn't seem as though he was some kind of miracle child that was just doing miracles and everything he, he touched turned to gold. You know, we don't get that feeling from what they were saying that he had any particular uh, extraordinary or supernatural childhood. And if we think about it, Jesus's ministry of miracles and teaching actually only lasted about three years, the last three years of his life, which means that if my maths is correct, he spent about 85% of his adult life living what must have been a fairly mundane family life, working for a living just as we are, as we do. But why did Jesus, who God, who's God with us, the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the one who would save his people from their sins, why did he spend such a large proportion of life in obscurity. You know, if I was planning uh, the life of the saviour of the world, it would be bells and whistles from the beginning. It would be an incredible, you know, birth in a palace and, you know, everybody would know about it. It would be an incredible childhood just going around doing amazing miracles. And, it, you know, it would, it would be an extraordinary life. But it seems as though for a great majority of Jesus' actual life, he lived a life similar 
uh, to ours in many ways. And for me, I think the answer can be found in Ecclesiastes. Because actually, Ecclesiastes is a book about the mundaneness and the ordinariness of life in many ways. It's so brutally honest about how difficult life can be, how hard it can be just to live an average, normal life. So what causes the biggest temptations in your life? Now, I know that hardships and when we go through difficult times, uh, they can be very hard. But I know for me, it's a kind of time where I rally round. I know something is going on. I know I'm in a battle and I might struggle for a bit, but then I kind of rally myself and I think, okay, a battle's going on here. I need to, uh, you know, put on my armour and I need to fight. But actually for me, it's dealing with the mundaneness and the boringness of life, those same days that seems a groundhog day come round and again every day you're waking up for work and doing the same thing or uh, you're you're you know living a life that doesn't seem to be changing nothing extraordinary is happening it's those kind of times that often creep up on me and it's a battle that I don't even realize that I'm facing it's a sense that I deserve something better than this that maybe I'm missing out somehow that seems to creep up on me and I don't realize the battle that I'm in And it's often when I'm fighting these thoughts and these feelings that I do things that I later regret. Although the Bible focuses on Jesus' three years of ministry, I'm actually so grateful for the 30 years that we don't hear about. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came to experience what it means to be fully human, the trials and temptations of an ordinary life. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, the Bible's silence on the specifics of this part of Jesus' life allows us to more fully identify with him. We can kind of put ourselves in his place to some extent. Because as Solomon says throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, most of our life is pretty mundane. So we need to learn to be content in it and find our joy in the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes 2.24 Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labour. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 4.6 Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes you see this theme, that actually to serve the Lord means to serve him in, in the ordinariness of life, to be content and thankful for the life that we have. It's not about having this kind of uh, incredible supernatural life that is very different from those around us, but actually being thankful and serving him in the day-to-dayness of life. It's actually a theme of many of Paul's writings as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. It's clear from scripture that this is what Jesus did. We may not know the specifics of his early life, but we know that he lived a content and thankful life, making the most of his circumstances to bless God and others. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. However, most of us, if you're anything like me, fell miserably 
at being content and thankful for our given circumstances. Somehow we feel that we deserve better than this. Maybe uh, even as a child of God, we feel that God should give us more than other people. You know, that's, uh, you can go to many churches in the land and that's what they'll teach you. You're a child of God, therefore you deserve wealth, you deserve health. God has got a better life for you. If only you pray enough, if only you have enough faith, then somehow you'll lead this supernatural blessed life. But I don't see that in scriptures. What I see is that God gives different lives to different people. Some people have wealth, some people don't. Some people have health, some people don't. But he calls us to be thankful. He calls us to honour him in them. But somehow we feel that we deserve better. So what do we do? We idolise and we run after the things of earth, trying to find pleasure and meaning in them. We think that somehow we must be missing out. Somehow we deserve better. Solomon had exactly the same thoughts, but he came to realise the foolishness of them. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labour in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And if you remember from our studies, here was a guy who was one of the richest and wisest people who ever lived. He had everything. He had palaces, he had... Um, built the temple, he had farms and gardens, he had slaves, he had musicians, he had countless wives and concubines. He'd explored every area of pleasure in life and nothing satisfied. So why do we struggle to be content? Why do we strive after so many things only to find them meaningless and unsatisfying? Why do we always think that we deserve a better life? Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7:29, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And again in 9 verse 3, sons of men are full of evil. See, the first man, Adam, was born without sin, but soon thought that he deserved better. You remember in the garden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve? Well, you know, God's trying to keep good stuff from you. Nothing bad is going to happen if you eat of the fruit. It's just God, he doesn't want you to have, he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have all the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve believed. Why? Because they thought they deserved better. They thought that somehow God was keeping the good stuff from them. So they rebelled against God. Now Adam was our representative. Because of his decision back then, we are now born in sin. We're now born mistrusting God and seeking our own glory. This is why we can't live a contented and obedient life, but rebel against God by chasing after idols, pleasure and wealth. It's there right from the beginning. You can see it in small children. They don't want to do what's right. They don't want to obey. It's all about them. They don't have to learn to say no. They don't have to learn to rebel. Jesus was like Adam, born without sin. But unlike Adam, he chose to trust God, to live for the glory and purpose of his father, and in complete obedience to him. John 6, 38 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus didn't have the easiest of childhoods. You know, he was born uh, into, uh, into a manger in a, in a, in a um, town that wasn't his. He then uh, lived uh, as a, a refugee in Egypt for a while. Um, we then believe that his father died when he was sort of growing up quite young. He lived the majority of his life, as we've seen, in, in kind of mundane obscurity almost. But he lived a sinless life. 
You know, if that was me, I'd have all these kind of bitterness and regret and anger and frustration about life and what I'd been handed in life. But Jesus lived a sinless life, no envy, no greed, no bitterness, no lust, no jealousy, no selfishness, no lies. And thank God that he is the second Adam. He lived his life as our representative, presenting it to the Father on our behalf, the sinless life that we could never live. Romans 5, 8, 19 says, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. But it wasn't just his life that was on our behalf, it was also his death. Back to Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 2, where we started. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, when we were still without strength, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, Jesus didn't just live our life, a sinless life that we could never live. He died in our place, the spotless Lamb of God, paying the penalty for our sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we come to the appointed day of our death, Solomon is quite clear that none of us will be, have power to prevent it. We cannot stop ourselves from dying. Ecclesiastes 8, 8, if you remember, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. However, Jesus has all authority and power. Jesus willingly laid down his life. John 10, 17 to 19. I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. You see, Jesus knew the significance of his death. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. <coughs> you see, Jesus had lived his life in the shadow of death. Solomon said in uh, chapter 7, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. As we read in Isaiah 53, Jesus was a man of sorrow who faced up to the fallenness of this world and chose to become sin for us, to take the wrath of God in our place. As we read Isaiah 53, 3 to 5, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14. Whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken from it. When Jesus died, he cried out, It is finished. The sacrifice for sin was accomplished once for all. We cannot add anything to it by our own efforts. There is no self-righteousness. Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Ecclesiastes 9, 
verse 1 and 7. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. God has already accepted your works. See, for those of us who trust him, Jesus has redeemed our lives under the sun and reconciled us to God. Truly, our works are acceptable to God because of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Because of Jesus' life and death, those of us who trust in him need not fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? See, for a Christian, the day we leave this earthly body and enter a life of eternal blessing, free from sin, is truly better than the day that we were born into this life as a slave of sin. Paul himself recognised this in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And finally, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 14 to 16. He comes out of prison to be king. Although he was born poor in his kingdom, there was no end to all the people over whom he was made king. See, Jesus is king. Jesus will return as king to judge. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Even Isaiah prophesied it, Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. So what can we say in conclusion to this? Well, the angels announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, for there is born to you this city in the David, uh, so is born to you this day in the city of David, a saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Let me ask you a question. What is your response to this baby in a manger? This poor yet perfect, despised yet beloved, executed yet risen, returning king. We read in Isaiah 53, verses 8 to 11, he was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. When you make his, offering, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pressure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. Let me ask you another question. This Christmas time, is his soul an offering for your sin? Will you trust in the life and work of that baby in the manger, the man on the cross, to give meaning and, and fulfilment to your life and save you from the wrath to come? <clears throat> Will you become a child of God yourself, born again from above? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord 
Emmanuel. Amen.